As we mentioned last Sunday, whenever a double agent wants to reveal information to the CIA, the CIA usually gives them several layers by which to identify themselves so there's no chance that they communicate with the wrong person. Several signs that make it clear that when the meeting and the conversation finally happens, it's the right person. For example, one particular Soviet double agent was given six prearranged signs to accomplish. Think about this. He was to go to Mexico City, number one. Number two, he was to contact a certain guy in the city to let him know he was there. And when he found the guy, he was to identify himself by the name of I. Jackson. Thirdly, after three days, he was to go to a specific place in the city and Number four, stand in front of a statue of Columbus there. Number five, with his middle finger, he was to place his finger in a guidebook of the city. And when he was approached by somebody asking for directions, number six, he was to say that the statue of Columbus was a magnificent statue and that he himself was from Oklahoma. And at that point, the CIA's operative would know they had the right guy. We hear that and we think how complicated that, that is, how certain that would, that would be. I mean, it, it would be almost unthinkable that somebody could get all that right if they weren't the right person, right? As we approach this time of the birth of Christ, Jesus had not six signs to identify him, things given in advance to let us know when he came we had the right guy. Not six, but 322. That's right, there are roughly 322 direct prophecies that describe for us the character and nature of the coming Messiah, as well as giving us specific details about his birth, his life, and his death. It's the dominant theme of all of the Old Testament, Jesus is coming, Messiah is coming, and the world should be watching for the birth of this baby who would be God forever with us. So obviously, fulfilled prophecy is a major way that God has authenticated the message of Jesus. We've already heard the, uh, the reading as we've been studying the last couple of weeks, and we'll hear it again in just a minute, of a 2,700-year-old birth announcement. We find that in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, a birth that had to happen in a desperate world if humanity would ever know rescue from and peace with its creator and judge and come into the joy of knowing him as Father. But unlike any other birth announcement that you may have received, this birth announcement came 700 years before the birth, not days or a couple weeks after the birth, but 700 years before the birth. And this was just one of the hundreds of signs given so that we might, when he came, recognize Jesus who he is. This birth... Though it appeared to be just another poor, oppressed, young mother giving birth to another Jewish baby boy, it was indeed a royal birth. And the baby in Isaiah chapter 9 is assigned four different names in advance 
that can only belong to God Himself. We've begun to look at what child is this in Isaiah chapter 9, particularly verses 6 and 7, and we've, we've seen the four names there. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, last week and the week before, and today, Everlasting Father, next week, Prince of Peace. Uh, we want to see this morning... As we think about the question, what child is this? He's wonderful counselor. He's a wonder of a counselor. What child is this? He is mighty God. This is who Jesus is. This morning I want you to see what child is this? Jesus is everlasting Father. Would you stand with me one more time as we read Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7? It's interesting, just before we begin in verse 1 of chapter 9, at the end of verse 8, the prophecy, God speaks to the prophet and says, there's going to be great gloom and anguish, it's going to be a dark time, the wrath of God, the judgment of God is going to be all over the people of God. And then he turns the corner in, in verse 9, chapter 1, and says, but there will be no gloom for her in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. There will be no more war. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. He's a king, and his name, this king will have some titles. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You may be seated. And may God add his blessing to the reading of this precious word from Isaiah. There's a king coming. And when that king comes, the prophet says... All the darkness, all the gloom, all the anguish will be, will be taken away and it will be a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of peace that will never end, a kingdom where his reign will ever increase and his peace will ever spread. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And over 700 years later, the zeal of the Lord of hosts made sure it happened in the birth of Jesus Christ. There in a Bethlehem pasture. I want, to, want you to see this morning the simple truth, but oh so profound, that Jesus is everlasting Father. Jesus is everlasting Father. You know, that's not a title for Jesus that we often talk about, is it? 
We talk about God the Father and God the Son. We know that Jesus is God the Son. And so for us to talk about Jesus, God the Son, as everlasting Father, that's a little different, isn't it? It's, it's not even so strange for us to think of him as wonderful counselor or even mighty God, but to call God the Son, Jesus, everlasting Father. And automatically and naturally, some of you are recoiling at the thought that Jesus is everlasting Father because you've never known a good Father. Sociologists and psychologists have consistently noted that one, if, one of, if not mo- the most, significant factors that form how we engage with life is what our relationship with our Father was and is like. As Stefan Poulter puts it in a, in a book called The Father Factor, you probably had, if you didn't have a good father, one of four types of dysfunctional fathers. Maybe your dad was the never-satisfied dad. Can you identify with that this morning? Maybe your, your dad wasn't that dad. Your dad was the time bomb dad. Or perhaps the emotionally distant dad. You knew he loved you, but he never really engaged. Or perhaps he was simply the absent dad. If you didn't have a good father that, that communicated to you even something of who God is and, 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 and was loving and engaged and caring and compassionate and there, perhaps you had one of these kinds of dad. You could never do enough. You never knew when he was going to explode. You just wish he would actually hold you and tell you he loved you. Are you simply long for the day he would show up for your ball game? If that's where you've lived, perhaps many of you apply all of this to God. You don't want to know God because inwardly you feel like he'll just leave you or you think he really doesn't want to get close to you so you struggle to open up to him. Or you're afraid that even though you've heard he loves you, One day he's suddenly going to blow up when he gets tired of your failures and your sin. Or maybe you just can't imagine how God could ever be satisfied with you enough to call you his beloved child, fully accepted. Before this message is over, I pray that God will deal with those real and understandable struggles for you. And I pray that you'll see God. You'll see Jesus in all his beauty as everlasting Father. Here's the truth I want you to take home with you today. Jesus is everlasting Father. Jesus is our everlasting Father who compassionately and yet powerfully provides for and protects us. I'm so thankful that that's who Jesus is today. Jesus is our everlasting Father who compassionately and yet powerfully provides for and protects us. Everlasting Father, one who is eternally a Father to us. 
All throughout the book of Isaiah, we hear these, this sort of language. In Isaiah 63, verse 16, it says of God, You are our Father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. Isaiah 64, verses 3 and 4, and also verse 8. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. This is Israel talking to God. The mountains quaked at your presence. For, for, for from of old, no one has heard or ear perceived. No, I has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Verse 8, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the, our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Jesus is our everlasting Father who compassionately and yet powerfully provides for and protects us. How is it that Jesus is everlasting Father? What does that mean? I want to break it down in, in, in just three, three ways for you this morning. First of all, Jesus reveals the Father to his people. Jesus reveals God the Father to his people. Matthew 11, verse 27. Jesus says there, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, listen, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. How is it that you could, the only way that you'll ever know the Father is if Jesus chooses to reveal the, him to you? If the Son chooses to reveal the Father to you, Jesus reveals the Father to his people. In John 14, verse 7, Jesus said, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This was said in, in, in answer to a question. Hey, Jesus, we've been watching you. We've been hanging out with you. Jesus, show us the Father. Let's cut to the chase. We want to go straight to the top. We want a vision of, of the big cheese of heaven. We want to skip all this with you. We want to go straight to the main person of the Godhead, God the Father. Jesus said, whoa, have you been with me so long? Do you not get what's going on in this thing called the incarnation? Do you not understand what's happening with this body, this, 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 this person walking around among you? If you'd known me, you would have known my father also. Listen, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. What did that mean? You've seen the father if you've seen me, Jesus said. You want to see the father? Look at me. You want to know who God the Father is? Look at God the Son. Jesus is everlasting Father. Jesus reveals the Father to his people. Said another way by Paul in Colossians 2 verse 9, Paul says, For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We believe that God is one God in three persons. Now, if you're tracking along, you understand that doesn't really make complete sense. You can't really explain what I just said, and that's exactly true. It's called the mystery of the Trinity. But we believe it's true because the Scripture reveals it to be true. Scripture tells us it's true. 
And again, we're talking about God, so don't let that be a stumbling point. Understand, if you're talking about God, then by definition of his godness, he's beyond our comprehension, right? So when he describes himself as something we can't comprehend, we should expect that, right? I mean, this just philosophically makes sense, logically makes sense. Why would we expect God to be something containable and explainable? And so he's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all in one God. Three persons in one God. Colossians 2 verse 9 says that in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. How far are you going to go on explaining that, Chad? Not very far. (laughs) I'm not sure what all that means, except to say that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Jesus. So that Jesus could say back in John that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what the Father is like? Look at me. You want to know what the Spirit of God is like? Look at me. Listen to me. Jesus reveals the Father to his people. Christmas is about Jesus coming as everlasting Father and showing the world who God is. But secondly, notice Jesus Jesus relates as a father to his people. Jesus reveals the father to his people, but secondly, he relates as a father to his people. The first thing under this point I want you to see is is this assurance of his fatherhood by the Spirit of God. In Romans 8, verse 9, and also verses 15 to 17, listen listen to the truth that we have in Jesus Christ here. You, however are not in the flesh, if you know Jesus, if you trusted Christ as Savior, if you're part of the family of God, you're not in the flesh but in the Spirit. That is the Spirit of God. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Notice this interchange in in the the second half of that verse. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So which is it? Is it the Spirit of God or is it the Spirit of Christ that indwells us as believers? Yes. Yes. Right? Because they're one God in three persons. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. In Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. The fullness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit of God comes to indwell us, it is the Spirit of Christ who is indwelling us making us his own. Verse 15 of this same chapter says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Jesus relates as a father to his people. And in Romans 8, he gives us an assurance of his fatherhood. We, we come to have that assurance even by the work of the Spirit who testifies in our heart that we are his children and, 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 and stirs in my heart and in yours, if you know him today, those words, that cry out to God as Abba, Father. What a beautiful thing. Jesus is everlasting Father. 
He came to reveal the Father to his people, but he also came to relate to us, his people, as a father and work in our hearts by his spirit to cause us to cry out to him, to cry out to God, Abba, Father. And all of a sudden, the father we may have never had, all of a sudden, the father that, that we long for, even as grown men and women today, we have, and then some. And through the Spirit of Christ, through the, through the saving work of Jesus Christ and in the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, we can cry out and know personally the Creator of the universe, the Lord of all things, as everlasting Father. We can cry out to Him in prayer every day, Abba, Father, Daddy. What a beautiful salvation. But the second thing to notice as we think about Jesus relating to his people, his father, is that he rejoices to be our father. In Matthew 18, verse 12, it says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The Father rejoices to be your Father and call you His son or His daughter. He left the 99 to seek out you, to find you. To come get and rescue from the chains of sin. You, sir, you, ma'am. This is the kind of father you have in Jesus, our everlasting father. He rejoices to be our father. Does that stir your heart this morning? You know, we, we, we sang a song in, uh, um, oh, where's Joe? Joe, doggone it. I can't ever, you know, spur of the moment these things pop in my head, but my head's weak. <laughs> it pops in, and then my, my head don't know what to do with it. Anyway, we sing this song and he let it about this very reckless love and talks about not that God is reckless, but that his love seems reckless. So pursuant of us was he that he would come and leave the 99 to come after me, that he would knock down walls, tear down lies we sing. And I just think about that when we sing. I, I, I get excited when we sing that song, and one of the reasons is because I know all the lies I believe before I trusted Jesus. I know the lies I've, I've chosen to believe even as a child of God that have kept me cut off from my Father, kept me not in good fellowship with Him. I know the walls that I've put up that the world's told me will separate me from God, he's torn them all down in Jesus. He would not stop till he apprehended me. One old preacher from another day said, he, 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 he's, the hound of, he's like the hounds of heaven. He, he's, he's just running us down till he gets us treed. If you're a coon hunter, you can appreciate what I just said. If not, just trust me, it was good. He rejoices to be our father. He loves, listen to me, I want you to get it. He loves you. He loves you like your dad who didn't should have. 
He loves you like you needed to be loved but weren't. All of that and then multiply it by by an infinite variable called the grace of God, the holiness of God, the strength and might and righteousness of Almighty God. And you might begin to get close to just how much he rejoices. Or today, if you're here and you don't know him as Father, how much he will rejoice if you will come to him through faith in Jesus Christ to call you you child and for you to be able to call him Father. Third thing we see about how he relates as a father to his people is that he anticipates and meets our needs. Matthew 6, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is, it, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds in the, of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? When's the last time you start, stopped to think about birds? I mean, really slowed down and watched birds. Is it not interesting? You don't just drive along and see birds shriveled up because they didn't have anything to eat laying on the side of the road. You see them hit by a car, right? They flew into a bumper. But you don't see a bunch of starving birds. Why? Because God feeds them. It's, I mean, it's just the beatingest thing. You go out in the woods. Some of y'all do. You need, to take, you need to take a walk more. You need to get out. You need to see stuff. Animals living, because what you come away with is the fact there is a bunch of stuff God feeds. And yet I worry about whether or not I'm going to have all I need, whether or not I'm going to be able to pay my bills, this and that. And, and God, we're, we're his, his, the pinnacle of his creation, fallen into sin. In fact, we plunge the whole rest of creation into sin, squirrels and birds included. They're thanking us for that about right now, by the way. But (laughs) we're still the ones for whom Christ died. Don't you think that if he takes care of the birds, he'll take care of you? That's what Jesus said. Are they not more of of more value than... are of, Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon and all his glory, his kingly array, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. People who don't know our God. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You see, Jesus came to give us the unending love of a perfect father who would provide for and care for us and give us all we need in salvation and in daily life. And Jesus relates as a father to his people. Jesus is everlasting father. He reveals the father to his people. He relates as a father to his people. But thirdly and finally this morning, Jesus receives those who come to him as a father. Listen to the invitation of Jesus from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. These these three verses never get old to my heart. Jesus, here's his call to you. He's saying this to you this morning. If you don't know him here today, he's saying this to you right now. 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, it might be that this time of year, right now in this moment, you're as worn out as you've ever been. Maybe life's got you to that place. The season's got you to that place. This thing is supposed to be so much fun has worn you slap out. Perhaps it's the pain of separated relationships, torn up families, whatever it is that in this time that's supposed to be happy, it's not. It hurts. You're tired. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will, it's a promise, give you rest. An invitation with a built-in promise. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You're not going to be left alone. You're not, I'm just going to fix it for you. I'm going to be your master when you come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know what we all need? We don't need freedom from, 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 from every master. We need freedom with the master. Freedom in the service of the master. We're not our freest when we have no master. When we're our own master, we're freest when we are enslaved and, and, and being guided by the gentle and humble leadership of Jesus himself. And it is there, Jesus said, that you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, Jesus said, and my burden is light. You know, if you're here today you, you, and you're hurting, you're under a heavy weight, I don't know what it might be in your life, but, but, but maybe you're here today and, and you just you, you hear those words and you think, man, to have, a, to have a, an easy yoke, to have a lot in life, a, 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 a day that I could say that it was good to be a child of God, to say that, that the burden I'm carrying today is not crushing because Jesus helps me bear it up to say that I had help under the pain of my circumstances and these afflictions that I'm dealing with. Oh, to be able to say that. Hear me today. Jesus invites you. He says, come. He says, come. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The one who said that died and rose again and ascended to the Father's right hand for you. Let me tell you something. If he tells you he can give you rest, if he can, if he can die, rise again, and, and ascend to the Father's right hand, he can get that done for you. He can handle that in your life. The invitation from Jesus. Jesus receives those who come to him as Father. But hear the promise from Jesus. It was built in. I will give you rest. I just want to describe that rest a little bit more. Psalm 103, verses 11 through 14. There the psalmist says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. You ever measure the distance from the heavens above the earth? Do do we have any concept of how far that is? It's a long way, amen? I mean, best we can tell based on a current... um, uh, astronomy, it keeps going. Light years. I mean, can you measure a light year? I mean, can you just stretch out a tape on that? No. Think about this. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, you ever measured that? You ever gone from one to the other? Y'all tracking with me? You know what happens, right? You go east, infinitely. You go west, infinitely. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us, and therein is the rest. It's the rest we need most. 
not the only kind of rest he gives us, not the only relief he gives us in this life, it's not the only uh, help he gives us, but it is the main rest. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. You know what the rest is? It's to know his steadfast love that is so big it reaches light years into the sky above us. As a father, how about that? Verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He is a good, good, everlasting father. The promise from Jesus is rest. The rest is his love. The rest is forgiveness of sin because of his sacrifice on the cross. I love the picture painted for us in the story of Jesus and, 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 and the time they brought that adulterous woman to him. The whole story suspects, you know, that it was just the whole, the whole thing made it clear it was a mess. I mean, how did they just happen upon this woman caught in the very act of adultery? They didn't. These hypocritical Pharisees, these legal, religious legalists set the gal up, Okay? They, they, they watched, they planned, and they went and took her and brought her to Jesus. And you know how the story unfolds. They said, what are we supposed to do with her, Jesus? And Jesus doesn't say anything for a minute. And then, and then finally he says, the one who has not sinned, let him cast the first stone. Because that's what the law of Moses called for was stoning. Jesus said, I'll tell you what, whoever among you hasn't sinned, you, you, you start the stoning. And it's interesting, the text says, beginning with the oldest. <laughs> you know what that tells me? The older we get, the more we realize how sinful we are and how much we need a Savior if we're, if we're growing in, in any sort of wisdom. In their case, it wasn't even, wasn't even salvation wisdom. It was just common sense wisdom. And then it says in verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? They all left. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Did Jesus deny the sin of her adultery? No, he owned it. He said, go and sin no more. I'm, I'm forgiving you of your sin. I'm no longer condemning you for the sin you were just caught in. It is sin. Go and sin no more. But I no longer condemn you. I'm giving you rest. How can holy God, how could the holy son of God walking around on planet earth look at a woman caught in adultery and say, I don't condemn you? How does a holy God do that, justify her, declare her innocent and forgiven, and yet still be holy and just? Well, if you've been around our, for our study of Romans, you know the answer. It's in Romans 3, and I'm glad you asked the question, verse 23, where Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's true for everybody on the planet, by the way, except Jesus Christ himself. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, listen, 
And because that's true, because all of sin, because nobody meets the standard of a holy God, the only way to be justified is spoken of in verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. If you're going to be made right with God, it's when God gives it to you by grace as a gift, and you take it, just like you will Christmas presents. You won't barter with Grandma for that Christmas present. Wives, you're not going you're not going negotiate and purchase the gift that your husband bought, except I know it came out of the same account, but you know what I'm saying. You're justified by, by his grace as a gift. How does that happen? Even then, how does holy God give justification as a gift? How does he declare us right with him in his holiness and still be just through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the cross? Verse 25 makes it even clearer. Whom God put forward propitiation by his blood, his death on the cross, to be received by faith. How does holy God give you salvation, forgiveness, righteousness as a gift? He sent his son to die in your place, to on the cross, bear in his own body, Peter says, all of your sins, and there have God's wrath poured out on him for your, against your sins poured out on him. He was your substitute. A propitiation, one who satisfies fully the wrath of Almighty God. All of God's justice against your sin and mine, if we trust Jesus today, has been met. It's been paid. The price has been paid. We sing, it, it, the song's right, Jesus paid it all. How do we get the goods? How do we get the benefits of his death? Receiving it by faith. Text goes on. This was to show God's righteousness, divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Somebody had to die for your sins. Jesus did. If you trust him, that, 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 that payment is applied to you. And in so doing, God can then be just. He's still holy. The price was paid. His wrath was satisfied. His justice was fully poured out. Sin was not just let go, and yet, because of Jesus' death in your place and his righteous life for you, he can at the very same time be just and justify you and call you a son or daughter of the living God, one that's fully accepted in the beloved, one that's just as, that he says just as righteous as Jesus himself. One to whom you can cry out, now, now in a relationship that you can cry out, Abba, Father. What a salvation. What a great salvation. In John 14, Jesus takes this a step further. Jesus receives those who come to him as a father, he's invited us to come for rest, and he's promised to give it when we come. That rest is righteousness, it's forgiveness, it's peace. And he's accomplished all that for us through his life, death, and resurrection. But listen to John 14. Jesus said, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. 
Because I live, you also will live, and that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What's all that language about? Just without getting too bogged down in it, it's simply this. Jesus doesn't just receive us to himself as a Father and give us the rest of justification. He comes to indwell us by his Spirit. We've already looked at it in Romans 8. He comes to indwell us by his Spirit. He doesn't leave us orphans. He comes and lives inside of us and day by day sanctifies us, makes us more and more like Jesus. Suddenly, we today are in this reality every every day as believers where we are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. What does he say? In that day you will know that I am in my Father. Jesus, God the Son, God the Father, they're one. And you are in me, we're in Jesus, we're in Christ, we've trusted him, we've, we've joined ourselves to him by faith, and he is in us by his spirit, the spirit of Christ who lives in us and, and ca- causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. And it is by that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that you and I can live and overcome sin and obey God, say yes to God and no to sin and enjoy the peaceful fruit of righteousness that comes by his power at work in us. This is how everlasting Father receives those who come to Him. Jesus is our everlasting Father who compassionately and yet powerfully provides for and protects us. As we saw last week, He, as He lives in us by His Spirit, He will keep us all the way through this life and ensure He is the, the Spirit of God that Paul says in another place is God's seal. It's, 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 it's Jesus' engagement ring, if you will. And if he gave us an engagement ring, he's going to get us to the wedding. Amen? He's going to make sure it all gets consummated on that final day. That's your hope. That's my hope. Jesus is our everlasting Father who compassionately and yet powerfully provides for and protects us. J.D. Greer says this, Judge your earthly father by your heavenly Father. Not your heavenly Father by your earthly Father. And that's just the reality at the end of the day, isn't it? I thank God, and I, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I thank God, and I thank Him about every day that God gave me a godly dad who showed me, by and large, what God is like. He's not perfect. There's some things Scripture had to teach me that Daddy messed up, okay? This is being recorded. He'll hear this, so it's all good. He already knows. But there ain't much. But even if that wasn't your experience, I want you to hear me. Don't judge God by your earthly father. Look to the one who is perfect father. Jesus, everlasting Father, and judge your earthly father by him. You see, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in your place, if you trust him, Jesus is your everlasting father who knows you completely but accepts you and loves you fully. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love toward you, according to Psalm 103. And he's personal. 
engaged and trustworthy because his love, Romans 5 says, has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, if you trust Christ today, you can know that these words from Zephaniah chapter 3. When's the last time you read Zephaniah uh, in your, in your, in your alone time with God? Try it sometime. Zephaniah 3 would be a great place to start. Zephaniah three seventeen. This is true for you if you know Jesus today. Listen. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save, who, it should say, not show, typo, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Listen to this. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Is that your relationship to Jesus? Do you relate to him as everlasting father? Do you experience on a regular basis through prayer and the word of God him rejoicing over you with gladness? Did you know he felt that way about you today? Are you here today and you need the God who made you? You need to know that he rejoices over you because you've never known that. Let me tell you, because of Jesus Christ, you can know that today with certainty. And inasmuch as you were in him, he rejoices over you. Christian friend, brother or sister in Christ, when's the last time your heart was quieted by his love? Isn't that a beautiful picture of a father settling down his child? A mother comforting and, 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 and appeasing and easing a crying baby. And then it says he will exult over you with loud singing. How weird would it be, kids? I got one of ours here today. How weird would it be, Karis? She always gets nervous. They always get nervous when I start doing this. How weird is this? Karis is my girl. I love my girl. Karis is my baby girl. How weird was that? And yet she's smiling. Because see, even if your dad embarrassed you and did something crazy like that in church, if you heard your dad sing over you, sing a song about you, sing loud where everybody could hear how he loves you, you get over the weird. And what this says is better than that could ever be because everlasting Father. If you know Jesus today, he sings over you. He exalts over you. He's excited you're his and he sings a loud song rejoicing in you. Because you're something else, no? Because he is. Because you're worthy of his love? No, no. Don't get it all screwed up and twisted up and humanized. No, because he set his affection on you 
And in my salvation and yours, he gets great glory. And when he gets great glory, guess what happens? We get the satisfaction of being loved by him. There is no happier place in all the world than to be loved by God and have him exalted in us. There's no problem with us being satisfied and him being glorified. They go together. And the more he's glorified, the more we're satisfied. Jesus is our everlasting Father who compassionately, powerfully provides for and protects us. Let's pray together.